Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, That doesn't even cover the issue of broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, hello. You're listening to Countrywide. Annie Brown is my name. It's great to have your company today, wherever you're listening from. On the show today, backpackers have been desperately missed in the Australian horticulture industry over the past few years. And now international travel is opening up. When can we expect to see them back in Australia? We are talking backpacker return and the need for an agriculture visa today. But also, if you love a bit of barramundi on your plate, how would you feel about a bit of barra on your body? Half a tonne of skins being tanned as we speak. Um, so then we end up, you know, that, that leather's quite good for wallets and purses, the, the longer, the bigger fish for belts. That's right, barramundi leather. We're talking all the different ways that you can use a barra today. And you can fry them, bake them, roast them, mash them. Probably can't really eat them raw, though. But we do love the humble spud. They are pretty great, and apparently we've loved them even more in the past year. New stats are out saying that we ate more potatoes last year than previous years. I don't know about that. I think last year I might have turned into a bit of a couch potato during lockdown and the pandemic, but you are what you eat, I guess. And lastly, in this week, the Victorian government announced their bid to host the 2026 Commonwealth Games, and they want to take it to the regions, which begs the question, can we add some new sports like sheep shearing? Because I don't know if you've ever seen a sheep shearing competition, but they are elite athletes. Gee, at the top end, I mean, you're, yeah, they get down to some pretty quick time. I mean, you're only, you're only talking a minute or so per animal, you know. All that and much more today on A Countrywide. From the top end to Tassie, Countrywide on ABC Radio. Since the beginning of the pandemic, farmers have been desperately missing backpackers. Since Australia announced it would reopen its borders to working holidaymakers last December, the Department of Home Affairs has granted visas to more than 31,000 backpackers. But so far, almost 30,000 of them remain outside of Australia. And while there are hopes a visa rebate offered until late April will attract more backpackers to Australia... Ausveg spokesman Tyson Cattle says farmers are not expecting an instant workforce. For the horticulture sector, we've been decimated um, during the COVID pandemic with the constant reduction in backpackers in the country. Um, any, um, any offering from the government to try and speed up that process to get backpackers into the country is, is welcome, but we're certainly not expecting a, a flurry of backpackers to you know, take us back to the, the previous heights of having 150,000 backpackers in the country at any one time, anytime soon. Um, You know, it's going to be a gradual increase um, like we've seen with most other countries and their visas. It's not a, uh, it's not a really sharp increase in terms of uh, backpackers returning, but certainly um, any people coming back into Australia is, uh, is good news for the industry. And those workers don't necessarily get straight off their flights and go to work on farm. Yeah, it's an important one to note. I think 
pre-COVID, you know, of those 150 at any one time, the horticulture industry or or agriculture in general would employ around 35 to 45,000 of those each year. Um, so that's a pretty big number. You know, when, when you think about the 88 days and the amount of backpackers that are looking to qualify for their second year or their third year, they need to complete that 88 days. But certainly, you know, if they're if a backpacker is coming out, um, you know, and looking to start their holiday um, and, you know, it is a, a work and holiday maker visa, um, the reality is that they're probably likely to, you know, try and enjoy, especially this time of year, enjoy their time at the beach or or at the pub or, or in different hospitality venues or, or travelling up along the coast as opposed to getting stuck into their 88 days from the get-go. But look, certainly I think as we naturally if we get more backpackers into the country then all of a sudden we've just got more people into the system and hopefully it sort of um, helps horticulture you know further down the line. Okay and now that we do have the borders reopening we've also signed a free trade agreement with the UK in the interim which actually Mm. removes the requirement that British backpackers would have to do their 88 days and work on an Australian farm that could remove potentially more than 10,000 workers from the backpacker workforce. How concerned are you about that and the possibility that other nations, you know, we're currently trying to negotiate with the EU, might also say that, that they don't want to participate in that program? Yeah, look, it's a good question. I mean, we certainly, you know, we're, certainly we're getting feedback from growers and our members about the concern of any reduction in terms of backpackers because a lot of um, horticulture industry in general will have have built up a strong and strong and heavy reliance on the backpacker backpacker labor right so i think this is you know while the f the uk fta is still some time away in terms of that actually becoming a reality our expectation is that the EU would ask for, look over the fence essentially and ask for the same thing as the UK got in their FTA. I don't think anybody's under any illusions on that, but this is really where the importance of the agricultural visa becomes really to the forefront. If we're able to um, counteract the reduction in terms of backpacker labour and you know as we just spoke about we've got a significant reliance on it in the horticulture sector, we can balance that or counteract that with the numbers that will build under the Australian agricultural visa. So when we talk about the need for an agricultural visa, this is where it becomes really, really important because we want to reduce our reliance on the 88 days. You know, we want to encourage people that are coming out for a working holiday maker to enjoy themselves and and have a good time and all those sort of things. And then when it comes to working on farm, you know, absolutely, there's going to be some businesses that are still going to be reliant on some backpackers, and that's always going to be there or still going to be there for definitely the medium term. But certainly a number of our businesses are looking for uh, a more stable uh, and consistent and reliable workforce, and that's what we're hoping that the Ag Visa can deliver. That's Tyson Cattle from AusVeg speaking with ABC's Kath Sullivan. And just on the federal government's new agriculture visa, so far no country has agreed to participate in the visa program, leaving many details still unclear. But staying on the agriculture visa, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade officials have told senators in Canberra this week they expect Australia's ag visa could initially be capped at recruiting 1,000 workers. Although Agriculture Minister David Littleproud suggests the first workers would enter Australia on the visa before Christmas, so far none have arrived in Australia. 
Opposition Senator Christina Keneally used a hearing this week to question how the new ag visa will coexist with the Pacific Australian Labor Mobility Scheme, a scheme that sees many workers from the Pacific Islands come over to Australia and work during harvest. Here is DFAT officials Danielle Hennick and Ewan McDonald responding. Yep. The Pacific Labor Program will retain primacy. So mm. when, this, uh, when this program commences with a cap, uh, it will be less than the Pacific Labor Scheme, which has 20,000 workers currently, or more than 20,000 workers currently in Australia. Mm. Um, so again, you know, I think the government's been very clear about Pacific Labor and its primacy. Mm. So the, remind me the cap again. There is no, uh, there is, as I said earlier, that needs to be defined. Yeah, that across, but it would be fewer than twenty thousand, presumably. Oh, yeah, 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 I think it's more more thinking of, of a figure like a thousand or that to start off with. Senator, if I can just um, add for context, um, pre-COVID, just before COVID, we had about 8,000 Pacific workers mm. across the Seasonal Workers Scheme and Pacific Labor Scheme in country. It's, it's expanded, obviously, with, um, with the prioritisation of Pacific and the opening up the borders for Pacific. We mm. are expecting around about 25,000 by the end of March, early April, to be in Australia to meet this harvest. And mm. we have made it very clear, as the Minister said, that and worked very hard with employers, um, particularly after borders opened, um, where quarantine costs were no longer required to be paid mm. by employers, which was a major constraint. Are there, difference, are there differences in the conditions between the ag, agriculture visa and the Pacific Labor programs? Um, that is, I'm thinking about things like industry accreditation um, and, say, English requirements. Yes, Senator, there will be differences, um, and there are a number of reasons for some of those differences. I'll set out a few. Um, first of all, in the Pacific scheme, we do provide considerable support, noting that it is partly funded, uh, it is fun funded through the development program um, to Pacific governments. So part mm. of what we do is actually supporting each of the Labor ministries in the 10 countries we work with um, to support their capacity. Um, that includes other, other recruitments and other policies that they do have mm. in the labour sending space. Um, skills development is part of what we do in the Pacific scheme, which won't be part of the ag visa. Um, it is not ODA funded. Um, English requirements um, will be set at an, international, an IELTS level international English equivalent of 4.0 mm. in the Pacific we don't have a specific qualification around mm. English. We do require it in our seasonal worker program deed to mm. have to have a, a adequate um, English, which is judged by each labour sending unit. There are also differences just around, as I said before, the skills level um, in the Pacific labour schemes. As I think I said in earlier evidence, um, and Senator Fawcett was asking about, um, we do provide not just the agriculture sector. So although the agriculture and meatwork sector are the largest part, parts of it, we can provide ass assistance to any sector in regional and rural Australia. So aged care, tourism, hospitality, and some areas of light manufacturing right. are an important growth area for Pacific labour. Pacific yep. Labor at the moment also is only from skills level one to three, whereas the agriculture visa will allow people to come in under skills level one to two. What about a pathway to permanency? Because Minister Joyce and Minister Littleproud, <coughs> media release in the 23 of August, says it will complement the Pacific programs we've got in place, but also provide a pathway to permanency. Is it the government's intention for this visa to provide a pathway to permanency? Uh, I think it's fair to say the government's committed to um, 
creating options around that. Mm. Um, but as I said earlier, the negotiations are at just at the... We're just trying to finalise the first of the bilateral arrangements, uh, firstly. So mm. um, I think that will involve further consultation and design work in the future. That's Ewan MacDonald and Daniel Hannock from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade appearing at Senate Estimates earlier this week, looking at and explaining some of the differences between the Agriculture Visa and the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Yes, you're listening to Countrywide. Annie Brown is my name. It's great to have your company today. Now, Aussies are buying and eating more potatoes than ever, according to new data. Hort Innovation have released their annual statistics handbook for the horticulture industry, and it shows 87% of Australian households bought potatoes last year and put around 1.7 kilograms of spuds in their trolleys. Potato production also reached never-seen-before heights to match this demand, and the value of potatoes has exceeded $800 million for the first time ever. Head of Data and Insights Adam Briggs runs Megan Hughes through the figures. Potatoes had a really strong year this year. The production volume for potatoes increased by 5%, which translated to 70,000 additional tonnes of potatoes getting out into the marketplace for this year. The value of potatoes exceeded $800 million for the first time since we've been recording the data in the handbook, and that's an increase of just over $90 million in the period. So how long have you been doing this handbook for then? This is the sixth edition of the handbook, and the data that we capture now in the handbook extends out to a period of nine years. So the first year of data that we have available is for 2012-13, uh, and the a period that we've just released covers up to the period for 2020, 2021. So when you're talking potatoes, is this specifically like just like a normal spud? Or are we talking sweet potatoes and other varieties as well? So potatoes specifically talks to pretty much your typical standard spud. We do report on sweet potatoes through a separate commodity within the handbook. But in terms of potatoes, we are just talking your, your standard white potato. So not only were Aussie farmers producing more potatoes than ever, but people were actually buying them as well. It wasn't like there was this glut that they couldn't shift. When you break it down, what were consumer habits like? Was it primarily through retail or was it also through like food service? Mm, It's very interesting to to understand the the dynamics of the marketplace of potatoes. In terms of the data uh, captured for 2021, Approximately 15% of the volume of the crop went to food service, which covers things like your, your quick service restaurants and also you know other convenience options, catering as well. And the balance of that volume, 85%, uh, going, to, going to retail. Now, interestingly to note, the, the volume uh, compared to the previous year into the food service channel has increased, which indicates that consumers are coming back to some of those food service outlets uh, when, when looking for potatoes, but, but also other fresh, fresh horticulture as well. That's some pretty amazing stats there. What was it like when it comes to exports? Did most of these potatoes find their way onto the domestic market or were a lot sent overseas as well? So the majority of potatoes do remain uh, here domestically. Around 3% of the total volume of potatoes uh, are exported. 
Now, that doesn't sound like a particularly large number, but I think it's important to realise that in terms of potatoes, they are the largest vegetable crop in volume terms. So a 3% export volume for potatoes actually equates to just under 40,000 tonnes of potatoes uh, still going overseas. And the, the value of that export for potatoes was, was valued at just over $31 million uh, for the reporting period. So it's, it's quite, still quite significant. So the humble potato is um, obviously a very valuable crop in Australia. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's probably one of the quiet achievers for sure. A quiet achiever, the humble potato. I love it. That is Hot Innovation Head of Data and Insights, Adam Briggs, speaking to Megan Hughes. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Shoppers could soon see more locally grown dates in major supermarkets. Riverland-based Gurra Downs Date Company has received more than $400,000 through Woolworth Organic Growth Fund to help them develop a packing facility. Gurra Downs Managing Director Dave Riley tells Eliza Burledge the grant will help his family business increase its production. The main focus of the funding money is to upgrade our infrastructure. So we're getting a power upgrade and that's going to allow us to bring in some more equipment. So it's quite labour-intensive as things are set up now with the way that we handle the fruit going through the pack house. But this will give us the ability to put more fruit out quicker because we're going to have automatic washing machines and sorting and grading machines for the fruit to go through and extra dehydration capacity. So it's all about increasing our ability to be able to get fruit out of the paddock through the pack house and into the supermarkets. What has your production of fruit been like in recent years? Oh, we've been steadily growing. I mean, it's taken a long time to get where we were for the main reason being that we were unaware which were going to be the most commercial selections of date palms. So effectively, we've been running an R&D program for the last 20 years and we've brought in genetics from all over the date growing world and we've set them up and we've stood back and we've watched how they performed and from those, we've selected the very best of the commercial selections. So we're in a position now to march forward knowing exactly where we should be with which varieties. So there's been, yeah, a a fairly slow but methodical approach up till now. But yeah, we've got confidence now going forward with variety selection. And also, as good as the funding money is from Woolworths, the, the greatest benefit that we get is actually having the confidence that Woolworths want our product. And with their nearly a thousand stores nationally and the number of clientele walking through their shops every week, we can now have the confidence that our industry is market driven and we can get our volumes up and marching. And have you previously supplied much produce to supermarkets? Uh, it's been growing, but I wouldn't want anyone to think that we've had massive volumes coming through. We've got a lot of younger trees in the ground now of the right varieties, so we're going to have a, quite a steep growth from here on in, but it's been steady, steady. And you mentioned that you've experimented with a number of different varieties over the years. Are you able to tell me about some of those and what you've learnt? Initially, date palms had never been growing in the Riverland, so we kind of had some guidelines, and primarily that was looking at where we were against the equator. So so our farm's 34 degrees south of the equator. So we looked to 34 degrees north of the equator where sun angles are the same. And if you look at those countries, that includes Iraq, Iran, Morocco, so we started targeting varieties from those places. But honestly, we've got varieties from Egypt, UAE in particular, Saudi, 
all over the place and it's been quite surprising because the ones that you might read up on and say oh well that sounds very suitable because it's early ripening and it comes from that same area and we've tried them some of them haven't actually succeeded whereas some of the ones that were a bit further out of that geographical footprint and we had doubts about it's been quite surprising but in essence it's only been a very small number of cultivars that have proven to be successful and that may not necessarily be climate alone it also could be to do with how the fruit handles in a pack house and the market recognition for those products so it's quite an involved process selecting one that the market's ready to take. So are all your dates grown here organic? On this property yes we have two farms we've got another farm that we've got ambitions to turn that into uh, organic at the moment it's conventional until we fence that off and we can run our traditional way of managing an organic plantation which is sheep and geese got to keep the foxes and wild dogs out we're developing another farm that's not too far away from getting a fence around it and again we'll convert that to organics that's Gurra Downs Managing Director Dave Riley speaking with ABC's Eliza Burledge now the commercial barra Mundi industry in northern Australia is looking at options for reducing its waste and with the season now underway companies are looking to produce not just tons of tasty fillets but also fertilizer and fashion Matt Brand reports. The first catches of this year's commercial barramundi season are being unloaded in Darwin. For fisher Jeff Diver, he's hoping this iconic fish can reach a bunch of different markets this year. There's a push within industry for for 100% utilisation um, of the fish. So we've got products that's about half a ton of skins being tanned as we speak um so then we end up you know that that leather's quite good for wallets and purses the the longer the bigger fish for belts so so that's exciting and then um a significant portion of the heads and frames will be going into uh fertilizer um we've got um some companies are looking at portion packs that will be in the supermarket um, because this this individual fillet might be a bit big for say for a family of four so there'll be portion packs cut into um, three or four portions 500 grams supermarket shelves are quite accessible then we're looking uh, some companies are looking at barra burgers so anything that would previously might have been an off cut will go through them so there's at least one company that that'll be doing 100% um, full full utilisation of, of the fish. Yeah. I need to ask more about barrel leather. How many tonnes did you say were getting dried out? Uh, it's half a tonne of wet uh, weight, so 500 kilos. 500 kilos. Um, Where do you go to get that done? <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a guy in Esperance in Western Australia. Traditionally, he buys the skins of fishermen. We've, um, we've just, the industry's given him the 500 kilo to, to work with as a proof of concept. David McDermott is the owner of Mermaid Leather in Esperance, WA. He says like a lot of great ideas, turning fish skins into leather products was born over a barbecue and a few beers. My brother Andrew and his um, mate Bob um, were both commercial fishermen and they saw visually the waste, the amount of waste generated by their commercial fishing boats that they were both working on. Um, And then they eventually collaborated together to try and come up with an idea to reduce the waste. Um, And the idea was 
uh, developed around a barbecue over a couple of beers one day. So it started literally in the backyard as a hobby. He says sales have been hit a bit hard during the pandemic, but he's excited about the barramundi industry's push to reduce waste. We've been operating for 30 years and we have been uh, quietly banging on the door um, for that amount of time to try to make people aware and wake up that, you know, that the, uh, the commercial fishery needs to do something about its sustainability and, um, you know, more usage of the fish itself, like selling fish heads for, for cray bait, for example, uh, frames for fertiliser and skin for leather. I mean, if we can, you know, clamp down on, on the amount of waste generated by the commercial fishing industry, um, you know, it, it would it would go a long way to, you know, making people aware that, you, you know, you can use um, waste material from uh, certain industries and, and especially the fishery because it just doesn't happen. Otherwise, it all ends up in landfill pretty much. Mr McDermott makes a range of products like wallets, belts and handbags and says Barramundi has clearly become a bestseller. Barramundi is by far the most popular of all the fish leathers I do. I, I do local fish uh, from Esperance, things like snapper and shark and groper and other local fish as well. But the Barramundi seems to sell the best. The general public like the look of the Barramundi. Um, at the end of the day, the concept is all about making the commercial fishery more sustainable by targeting waste. That's David McDermott from Mermaid Leather ending that report by ABC's Matt Brand. You are listening to Countrywide. Annie Brown is my name. Lovely to be with you wherever you're listening from today here on ABC Radio. Now, lastly, with the Commonwealth Games set to come to Victoria in 2026 and with a big focus on holding events regionally, could shearing and wool handling be added to the roster? Well, they certainly should be, according to Tom Kelly, a shearing instructor and immediate past president of Sport Shear Australia. He says it would give the industry a big boost. Love to see the shearing wool handling competition included as a sport throughout the Commonwealth Games. Like where, yeah, obviously uh, COVID has disrupted us big time this last year or two, like a lot of competitions are hosted with um, regional ag shows and the likes and yeah no we'd we'd certainly be um, really keen to see that um, that evolve uh, I suppose when we're talking about athletes competing at the Commonwealth Games they're they're the strongest the the, the fittest the fastest in the world uh, we've I guess we've heard some some anecdotes before about re- relating a day's shearing to other sorts of exertion uh, how would you describe it yeah, so competition shearing and wool handling is built on both quality of workmanship and the time that it's taken to do the job. So it's a combination of both, but gee, our, our top-end competitors get pretty elite. They achieve a very high standard of quality at a pretty quick time, like she's, it's pretty full-on. Tom, what's considered a really world-class speed to shear a single animal? Look, it's a pretty tricky question to answer because it's you know it's a bit like how long is a bit of rope. It'll de- it, a lot depends on the shear ability of the sheep and the preparation of the sheep and that sort of thing. Yeah, they get down to some pretty quick times. I mean, you're only you're only talking a minute or so per animal, you know. And when you see shearing happening at those sorts of speeds. <laughs> It sort of just seems that the wool's almost jumping off the animal. Yeah, yeah, and that's 
you know, I, I think you're dead right there, and and that certainly adds to the spectacle. And yeah, but you've still got to be still got to be doing the job. Like the the sheep are, are judged outside for the finished job on them, and um, you know their shearers judged on the board for double cutting the wool and that sort of thing. And so it's yeah, a unique skill set. Now, we're only talking here about a hypothetical of cheering being added to the Commonwealth Games roster, and it has been raised before, prior to the 2018 Commonwealth Games during the recent uh, Tokyo Olympics. What's the prospect, do you think, that it, it could actually be added to the roster? I'm thinking, you know, it, like it's a it's a country sport, like it's a rural sport. Uh, you know, I, I think it should gather legs, the whole opportunity. I mean, it's a... It's, We've had such a huge heritage with our um, our sheep and wool. You know, we, we need to um, promote shearing and wool handling. It's um, we've got to try and um, secure more of our local workforce. I think there's an opportunity to um, promote and um, show it in a in a really positive light. So. I would think that um, there's too many positives not to grab the opportunity. That was Tom Kelly, shearing instructor and immediate past president of Sport Shear Australia, speaking with rural reporter Angus Fairley. And that is all for A Countrywide for today. To listen to previous programs, download the ABC Listen app. For more rural news, you can also visit abc.net.au forward slash rural. Thanks for joining me. I'll talk to you next time.